Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more, yes, more podcasting greatness. And, you know, the amazing thing about this podcast is how unbelievably affordable it is. All you have to do is click play on YouTube and you can hear it or, of course, on Stitcher, Google Play uh, or where iHeartRadio, wherever other good podcasts are sold. Hey, everybody, as you can see, if you're joining me on YouTube, I am joined again this week by my good friend, Cyprian Ivanov. Hey, Cyprian. <laughs> welcome back. Yes, welcome back indeed. This has been let me let me start this show by clarifying something because I, I I this is unusual. You know, the format of this show is the same as every other podcast I do where I've, you know, you and I people are I have guests, I have people on, I interview them, I talk to them. And so this looks like an interview and Cyprian and I got together on this at his suggestion, by the way. Um and a very good one, a really good one, which is why I took him up on it, because we have a series of podcasts here where we're diving into Scientology's organizational nonsense and madness and some of the uh, short and long-term effects of the policies that Elron Hubbard invoked uh, to run his organization and some of the negative consequences of those policies, because there are a great many of them. Scientology is a highly regimented, organized activity. It is not a, you know, sort of roll-your-own sort of cult. L. Ron Hubbard spent years breaking down very exact ways that he wanted his organizations run, his churches, as he calls them. And I use that term loosely, and some people even protest that. I would that. not use that term. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I get it. You know, I have gone on record as saying Scientology is not a legit religion, and I believe that. But at the same time, the government disagrees with me, and they are a legitimate, bona fide religion, according to, you know, many institutions and governments in the world. So that's how I talk about them. And um, in this series of podcasts that Cyprian is joining me for, we are exploring or breaking down or talking about um, – you know, some of the policies and some of the activities that go on in these organizations, which I worked in for, you know, 25 years. That's a long time. I, I, I had a lot of experience with Scientology. I read a lot of those policy letters. I listened to a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's lectures, and I lived and walked that walk. And it was a hard one to do. It was a very difficult and abusive situation. And so I've got a lot to say about it. And, and Cyprian, of course, recommended, well, here's a list of things we can break down to talk about this. And I thought, absolutely, let's do it, you know. But a lot of this is just coming out of my head or my memories or my ideas about it. I, I wanted to start this show this week, though, uh, sort of flipping the script a little bit. Because while this has been a series of shows about, um, you know, my experiences or my ideas or whatever about this... I want to get Cyprian's feedback on this to start with, right? Because we've covered, we've talked about sleep deprivation. We've talked about um, personnel and personnel transfers and the way that personnel are are shifted and moved about, and um, you know, and other nonsense like that in terms of this uh, of the organizations. So, Cyprian, 
What do you think about all of the stuff that we have covered so far? And what has stood out for you as the most noteworthy or bothersome or, or you know, what, what, what the hell are these guys doing? You know, and how do you, how do you see this as an outsider, as somebody who was never a Scientologist? As an outsider, Scientology's habit of documenting things makes it extremely valuable in understanding cult dynamics because so much of this works together to create uh, high stress, low thought, uh, high demand for loyalty versus uh, analysis environment. And because Scientology has documented so much of this, you can look at it from the outside and see how it plays into that. And in most of that, just bringing up topics and seeing what you say and your experience becomes much more valuable to understand it than an outside perspective who can only draw on examples from communism or other uh, totalitarian groups. The specific examples of having lived it and being able to point to policies, documents, and people is why having you talk about your experiences is usually more valuable. Mm. With the effects of stress and the problems it causes, we need to go back to the issue of sleep deprivation and how important sleep is to handling stress, to identifying problems and avoiding them. The effects of a sleep deficit compound the effects of stress pretty dramatically. And I really want to reiterate that. Stress and sleep deprivation are closely linked. Yes. And we're going to talk about stress today. But remember that when you've got a lot of tired people, they're going to mess up. And that's going to add to the stress. That's going to add to the guilt and loyalty concerns. And that's going to just compound the stress people are under and put them into an even more uh, narrow tunnel vision panic focus. So doing all, so when hearing some stories from Chris, one thing to bear in mind is how much sleep did these guys get? Were they mentally able to think about the situation as much as a fully rested person? You know that's a that's a really really important point. I'm glad that you were bringing that up as a as a point to stress because I um, I don't know that I've harped on it enough, and I haven't I don't know that I've actually even educated myself enough about it to be completely honest. Um, you know, we all know sleep is important, and we all know how we feel when we don't get enough sleep. Imagine having not enough sleep for years, you know, for decades. And that's the situation that Scientology put me in, put, you know, thousands of other people in who tried to do the work of being a Scientology staff member or a Sea Org member. They have very, very unreasonable high demands on every one of their members to invest as much of their time and energy into the organization as possible. And every effort is made through indoctrination, propaganda, peer pressure, you know, to get people in that group to pitch in as hard as they can 
for as long as they possibly can. And and I don't know that I've even commented enough over the years about how many how many um, victims of that I saw just pass out of the organization over time. I mean, people would just be. There was a man who I th- I think I mentioned in one of our in our episode about that who worked for almost uh, uh, two straight weeks with getting almost no sleep at all. I mean, he had the darkest circles under his eyes, the most white power I have ever seen in any living person after this. I, as a Sea Org member, I was looking at this guy going, holy shit, this, is, this guy needs to go to bed. I mean, this is unreal. And I watched the commanding officer of our organization um, encourage him to continue. Good job. We know it's rough, but you're doing the good work and you got to continue. And after he finished the project he was on, which was some dissemination piece, it was a promotional piece. After he finished that, he crashed harder than anybody I've ever seen crash in the Sea Org. And he ended up leaving the Sea Org. I mean, I hope that promotional piece was worth it because that was the last thing he ever produced for, for Scientology, you know, as far as a Sea Org member goes. And he was not, the, he was an extreme example, but not the only extreme example. I saw so many cases of people on the RPF, outside the RPF, in management, in the service organizations. Um, even the cooks, you know, even the even the uh, estates crew, being driven, being run like you know, just herded like animals, um, you know, to get the work done at any and all cost, and and it's that, and that is that is the epitome of Scientology organizational, you know, attitude is it's all about getting it done now, no matter what it takes, and it's always short term thinking. There's no concept of long-term planning. The only long-term planning that exists in Scientology that we could count on as staff or Sea Org were the events, were the, were the fact that there was going to be an event coming up, right? There's going to be the IAS event in, in October. There's going to be the Sea Org Day in, in November. There's going to be um, the... Um, the New Year's event on New Year's. There's going to be the March 13th event for the um, L. Ron Hubbard's birthday. There's going to be the May 9th event for the anniversary of Dianetics. There's going to be the Maiden Voyage events in July for the free winds. Those were the things you could count on. Everything else was up for grabs. You couldn't plan anything longer than about a two, two weeks away <laughs> with any degree of certainty. Uh- you know, that's a contributing factor to not being able to do good short-term planning as well. That's right. That's right. And and well, and and when you think about how everybody is is in this organization from the top down, from all the way going all the way to the top, the Miscavige's inner circle is run this way. And they run their people this way. And those people run their people. In other words, the shit rolls downhill. As we all know, that's what happens in organizations, not just Scientology. But when the kind of abuse that is being, you know, rolling downhill is is the kind of abuse where you're not feeding your people well, where you're not letting them sleep. And this is a chronic condition, not just a short-term, you know, one-off you know, if this was only something that happened once a year, even, 
you could kind of deal with that. You go, oh my God, it's you know, it's this horrible thing, but we we only have to deal with it once every in a, in a blue moon. Then you have what you could legitimately label an emergency situation or condition. This is in Scientology, by the way, called condition one. I don't know what condition two is, but condition one was everybody on deck, flat out emergency, nobody's going to study, sleep is optional, and we were in condition one almost all the time. You know, and, and it, to the point where after about five or six years of being in the Sea Org, it dawned on me that um, finally, because I'm such a slow learner, it finally dawned on me that that these periods of in-between condition one, those were going to be very few and far between. You couldn't trust them. You know, we would try, we would get sometimes these... Um, waves, these sort of cycles periodically of everybody's going to get sleep. Okay. Okay. We're, you know, we, 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 we've been tearing everything apart and it's crazy and we all know it's crazy. So let's, let's put a schedule in, let's get exercise time. Let's get sleep. Let's make everybody, you know, studentable and sessionable as they say, so that they can, you know, actually absorb information when they go on study. We're going to make sure they get study. We're going to make sure everybody gets a little bit of exercise time every day. And they would try to organize this up. And after watching this happen numerous times, and after about a week, maybe, after about a week, maybe, uh, if it took that long, it, another condition one came down, and it would all, and it all went to shit. That's Sea Org life, you know. Yeah, the whole uh, everything is top priority is one of the hallmarks of chaotic management. That's right, and it's it's very much a management problem because management has to prioritize and balance short term versus long term objectives. That's right. And when everything is all hands on deck emergency, you can't have long term objectives uh, and capabilities uh, managed. That's right. And it, and the interesting thing about this, or excuse me, one of the one of the horrible things about this is, even if at the city level you have the class five churches, the the the, the churches of Scientology of Denver, Milano, whatever, right? Um, you could have an executive director who runs that city-level organization and supposedly is fully responsible for and is completely in charge of that organization. But they aren't really because stuff comes down. That's right. Every single day, this person is receiving orders from a management unit, the Continental Management Unit. So... It doesn't, you know, so he's fully responsible. The double binds that enter in here, and we talk about double binds, these are these are really important, right? These catch-22s, this, you have to do this, but you also have to do this, and both of these things are mutually exclusive. They, they, they can't both be at the same time, and yet they are, and this is this is crazy-making. This is the anatomy of, of insanity. Um, Double binds. And that some of the double binds that exist organizationally is you as the executive director are fully 100% responsible for your organization. But we're management and we're telling you what to do because we know better than you do. So you're going to do this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't, 
you're for it. You're going to get busted. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to be physically punished, psychologically run over the, you know, raked over the coals. And the executive directors learn this after a little while. So they go like, oh, well, shit, I can't really be fully responsible and make my own decisions because I have to spend all my time doing these dumbass orders you people send. But they're still going to be treated as if they were fully in charge. That's right. When it comes to punishment time. In the military, it's supposed to be that you can delegate power, but you can't delegate responsibility. It doesn't always work that way, but the theory is there. Right. Scientology completely reverses that theory. That's right. Agreed. And and I wanted to comment on this more broadly because I don't know if you guys out there know this or not, but according to leaks that have been coming through from Mike Rinder's blog, um, it appears that this that this uh, this evolution, this new project, is coming to a, a close. It looks like it's coming to a head within the world of Scientology of having gone through all of the policies. Miscavige, for for decades now, since the last 21 years, Miscavige has had this long-term project of reorganizing, of reviewing and and recategorizing and cataloging and organizing all of Hubbard's written policies and bulletins. And apparently they got themselves a really big building and gutted it out, this big warehouse, and they've laid out all these tables and all of Hubbard's issues in chronological order. And Miscavige has sort of reinvented how Scientology policies should be taught and is now doing that. They're calling people, staff members from all the organizations in the world to come to flag, I think, and uh, it's either flag, it's either going to be Flag or Los Angeles, one of the two. And they are training them, retraining them, newly training them on all of this organizational stuff that Miscavige has repackaged. This is really no different than what he did with the Scientology technology, the bulletins and the books, back when he released this thing we call the Basics back in 2004 or five. When all of this new repackaged lectures and books and all this stuff was kind of dumped onto the Scientology world by Miscavige, and he had redone everything and revised everything and changed a bunch of stuff, but he said it was all as L. Ron Hubbard wanted him to do it, so it was all good, right? And, uh, and this is where Miscavige famously bragged about removing 2,000 commas from one of Hubbard's books, you know, The Science of Survival, and various other typographical errors and transcription errors and all this other stuff, which is just a bunch of nonsense. But it was Miscavige's excuse to rewrite L. Ron Hubbard and make it more the way he wanted it and also renew copyrights. And there's all kinds of fun bonuses in that. Same now is happening with the organizational side of things, with Scientology's policies. So we're about to see, probably in the next coming months, the golden age of admin, <laughs> of administration, right? And my my guess is that people are still going to be so stressed uh, and without clear direction that they will go through the materials, they will regurgitate the words, but when it comes time to apply it, they won't have a clear idea of what to do, so they will go off of their best guess at the moment which may not be very well thought through because 
one, the materials aren't very uh, coherent, and two, they're under a lot of stress, so they are not going to be uh, thinking very far ahead. Exactly. And that's going to create another series of organizational confusions. Exactly. And let's be clear that it's not like the base material, the lectures, the raw lectures and policies that Hubbard wrote or had written for him. And there's a great many policies that L. Ron Hubbard never had anything to do with except his name is on it. His wife, for example, Mary Sue, wrote a ton of policies. Um, other contributors, other executives that he had working under him came up with and wrote policies based on what they thought would work. But these policies are, are a mishmash. They're, they, you know, they're sort of organized by which area of the organization they most apply to. And then you have a series of policies that are written that are sort of blanket policies for everybody. And those are your basic staff policies. And those have been organized into their own book or volume, right? So you have these books of policy letters put together uh, by, you know, by the, organizational's the organization's divisions, if that makes sense. You know, it's kind of like all the policies about how to be an executive are in the book for the executives and all of the policies about how to sell people things are in this other book for the for the division two the promotion and, and sales people and that's kind Which of how it's divided sense up if this stuff was clearly coherent well that was where i was going right is exactly is is that would be a decent or interesting way of organizing it. I believe Miscavige is changing that, and he's now making it cross-divisional. He's organizing them or categorizing them more according to how the um, what he calls the production lines of the organization, and we don't need to get into that today. Which you know. might also work, but it very much comes down to are the core concepts clear enough to be applied. Exactly. And the way you organize those concepts can make a difference, but at the end, it is still based on the concepts themselves. That's right. That's that's exactly where I was going, is he can resort or recategorize all this however he wants, but junk in is junk out. <laughs> and that's what the problem is here, is if you actually go to the raw material it's a bunch of crap. I mean, it doesn't work. It's it's too it's either overgeneralized so you can't apply it specifically enough or it's too hyper specific and you get in trouble if you try to take this concept and generalize it into a more, you know, more wide widely applicable thing. Um, you have ridiculous policies about things like develop traffic, you know, this this business of how the organization oh, gets, in its, <laughs> gets in its own way. And, you know, and stuff like this. There's just, it, when you dive into the details of it, you know, you can give a, you could, I could give you a description of Scientology policies that would sound really cool, that would sound really positive. I could, I could spin it to make it sound really positive. But having worked in the organizations for as long as I did and trying desperately to apply these policies and watch other people struggle to do the same. And it, and it, and it really was a struggle all the time. You, you clearly, you know, come to the conclusion that 
this mishmash of advice and rules and 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 double binds and catch 22s and problems that you're given by L. Ron Hubbard and then the solutions he offers to them they just don't fly they don't work and the only way that scientology ever really moves forward or advances in any real positive or 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 you know uh expansive way, I guess, does what it's supposed to do, is is when some individual in the organization steps up, gets a bright idea, and just gets it done despite all the reasons not to. <laughs> Which is justified by one L. Ron Hubbard policy. Uh, what was that? Con? Oh, the con, uh, con thing? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but which is contradicted by other policies. Correct. That's right. For so every policy, becomes, for every policy who, to do this, you have another one that says don't do this. Which means whoever's uh, managing them and interpreting those policies is really going to be the determining factor. That's right. But the and and a reason I harp on this, maybe this isn't, maybe I should clarify this too, because I, I realize I've never actually said this out loud, but. You know, just like with Scientology's technology, quote unquote, you know, the, 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 the methods, the methodology of auditing and word clearing and teaching people things and all of that stuff that includes, by the way, all the OT levels and auditing and going up to Xenu and all that, that is one half of Scientology. That's the technology. But there's this other half that that is called the admin, the administration, the policies. Scientologists truly believe that L. Ron Hubbard wrote and devised a system of management and administration that is leaps and bounds better than any other organizational or administrative system that exists on Earth. They believe this because L. Ron Hubbard said so, and they believe it because L. Ron Hubbard claimed that the basic concepts and ideas that drive his theory of administration come from a civilization that existed in space 80 million years ago, and that organization lasted for millions and millions of years and was so big and so broad that it included you know, millions and trillions of people in it. Because it was a, a planet, you know, it was an intergalactic civilization. And he said, we took that and we improved on it. And that's what we've got. We've got the secret sauce for organization. We've got the administrative magic. And that is what Scientologists believe all of these policies and lectures actually are. Is they are the, they represent the most advanced system of management that exists anywhere in the world. And yet, when you look at Scientology churches failing across the world, you have to scratch your head a little bit and go, what? How is this supposed to be? How are these two things supposed to be true at the same time? You know? I, I mean, the only way I can imagine it is that a lot of the people hearing that don't have non-Scientology management experience. I think that's true. I sure didn't. I, I went right uh, into it, you know, as a team. Um, uh, Jeff Hawkins, uh, when he got his first job out of Scientology, he thought about uh, introducing some Scientology management tech to them. But he decided to wait and see how things were running. And it turned out that he was a lot more productive 
with a lot more free time in his post-Scientology job. So that would seem to be a much better endorsement of the non-Scientology management at that job than when he was struggling to get even basic stuff done in Scientology. That's right. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you something that's that I'm twigging on right now that we've that we have definitely talked about before, but I'm going to highlight it right now is the micromanaging spirit of Scientology management. Because I believe that this is actually primary cause to a lot of the problems we've we've discussed sleep deprivation, food deprivation, right, is this basic problem of L. Ron Hubbard didn't really trust anybody. And which, to be fair, considering a lot of his early recruits, might have been fair. <laughs> it was not fair. <laughs> he had okay. Let me let me put it this way: Scientology wouldn't exist if L. Ron Hubbard hadn't attracted to him a great many very smart, very bright, very willing to work people who thought that he had clued in on something amazing. Yes. Okay. So while he also managed to attract, you know, the debris of society to to, to some degree in certain... He attracted some very smart people and some very erratic people. Yes, he did. And and let's not also, uh, you know, negate that Scientology can also make people erratic. Yes, right. I think that was less of a concern in the first few years. I I would disagree with you on that because the nature of what Hubbard was dealing with in the early first years was not light grade stuff. L. Ron Hubbard was producing psychotics, people who actually went nuts in the first year of Dianetics. And that's continued to be true moving forward. Um, His efforts at um, using... um, Drugs. He was incorporating drugs and and medications into the use uh, into the auditing procedure. He um, sodium pentothal, for example, and and similar oh, things like powerful stuff. Um, okay. It even forced uh, Elron. It I, according to my 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 recent talks with John Atac, it even forced Elron Hubbard to tell the truth in a couple early lectures about his own past. I mean it's. It's not actually a truth drug. It's an anti-inhibitory. Exactly. And so when L. Ron Hubbard would go on stage under the, you know, under the uh, influence of some of this, some of these drugs, he would actually end up saying true things sometimes, too, to tell you how powerful this stuff was. But the efforts to try to to try to exteriorize people, get them out of their heads, have out of body experiences that that started in 1951 and was a very, very potent force in Scientology as early as 1952. And that was causing people to have psychotic episodes. So, Okay, you're looking at the Dianetics side, not the uh, people trying to run it. Well, see, for a lot of these people, it was the same people, though. See, he was attracting followers and trying to and using them to run and man his little fledging organizations and trying to keep this thing going. And those were his most (laughs) ardent followers, you know, and the only the only um, the only reason I'm making this point is that L. Ron Hubbard was having personnel issues right right from the get go. And he was also a very 
egotistical, megalomaniacal kind of guy. This is just his personality, and he thought he was he was all that, and he was absolutely convinced that he was all that. So, um, yet he would also have these, you know, sort of uh, bipolar episodes where he would go into these fits, these depressions, these these absolute, you know, uh, either rage fits or depressive episodes where he was sure he was a failure and it was all, you know, he was the worst person ever and all that. So you see him bouncing back and forth. But my point is that he never let himself trust the people that were trying to help him build this philosophy and this, and this movement. And he was always in it for himself first, so that's why Dianetics went bankrupt in the first couple of years, because he kept going and raiding the till and pulling the money out and then blaming the staff. You guys aren't running an efficient organization. Look at your financial insolvency. Well, who's the guy coming in raiding the bank accounts every month, right? Apparently back when he was on, what, the Apollo, he ended up having some guy go to Spain and carefully bring uh, – a refrigerated uh, seafood dinner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is the most ridiculous expenditure of resources I can think of. And that's L. Ron Hubbard, man. You know, he just, he, it was just kind of whimsical and not, and whimsical, not light and airy fairy. I mean, whimsical, like it was on his whim. He, he just did what he wanted. And it's tyrannical whim, not, uh, Let's have fun with. Exactly. But the double bind being that when he blows into town and is, you know, on his whirlwind tours and lecture circuits of the 1950s, which he did all, every year throughout the 1950s, um, he would come through and talk about the spirit of play and how fun this is all supposed to be and how exciting it all is. And we're, we're building and a new world. And he might have believed it when he was talking about it, but he didn't have the self-reflection to realize just how uh, hard it is to have a spirit of play when you're constantly being shouted at. Exactly. Exactly. Because at the same time that he's, that he's spouting spirit of play, he's also beating people or having them beaten up or... Um, you know, castigating them, you know, just just pounding them into the ground because they're not making enough money, not getting enough people in, not getting the job done, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So he was a re he was real hell on wheels. Hubbard was. And I'm trying to kind of paint that picture because I want people to understand that this is no organizational genius. You know, I, I will grant that he had some. Some genius and that he got total amateurs to get three ships underway. That uh, was actually that, almost a miracle. I actually that classify that. I classify that I as a miracle. More to Hubbard <laughs> having some idea of how uh, ships work yeah. uh, than his actual competence at long-term organizational management. Uh, exactly. That's, I think that's exactly right. It's it is uh, when L. Ron Hubbard took to this to, to the oceans uh, the, to the sea in 1967, late 66, you know, 67. During that time period is when the sea organization started, and it was all volunteers. It was people who signed up who were who were absolutely dedicated Scientologists, absolutely loyal to Hubbard. That was the test: is you had to be loyal to him. 
So they were going to do whatever he was going to. He told them to do, and he put them on these boats. And none of these people had a clue how to sail, how to how to boat around, how to be on the ocean. And somehow, miraculously, he took these two or three boats that were just almost falling apart. He hired a non-Scientologist alcoholic captain to captain one of the ships, and he had this volunteer crew who didn't know anything about boats, the Scientologists, and somehow miraculously got them down to Spain without killing anybody. And, uh, and without anybody dying, right? And it's and when you hear about the storms they weathered, literally, and the the work that they had to do on these boats, it is really I just classify it like I said. I, I think it's a miracle personally that nobody died because the number of opportunities for disaster there were so great. And somehow, you know, the one thing you can say about Hubbard is that he did know how to sail a boat. He was he was legit uh, professional at sailing. And uh, and so, you know, somehow he managed to keep that together enough to to keep everybody alive. But this was, again, not as you just as you just mentioned, not according to his uh, because of his organizational genius. It was almost despite his organizational ineptitude that they that they pulled it off. Yeah, uh, just looking over everything people uh, do and screaming at them until they do very basic tasks can get a job done. It does not produce good results in the long term, but it can get a job done. And I think that was the lesson he walked away with from that experience rather than looking at it and going, holy shit, we barely survived this. How do we reorganize this so that we don't ever have this kind of nonsense happen again? It was Look what we pulled off. Look at how amazing we are. We're the most OT, amazing super beings on the planet because we could do this. And therefore, let's go ahead and keep doing it. You see what I mean? Yeah, I think he, I, I think he got that impression a lot earlier, though. I, yeah, One I of the right. things with uh, the military in the 1940s was that... It was dealing with a lot of people who didn't want to be there, who were scared of dying, and a lot of people who were really, frankly, quite dumb. Okay. And having an having trained people, officers, uh, use intimidation to get people to do their jobs was an important part of getting stuff done. Mm. Uh and a lot of this was broken down to be very simple stuff. Mm-hmm. You'll have one guy whose job is to load train cars. You'll have one guy whose job is to scrape rust. You'll have one guy whose job is to refuel stuff. Broken down into a lot of very simple tasks that they can do when they're sleep deprived, when they're stressed. And it doesn't take a, doesn't take a lot of thinking to do it. Right. And that worked in war because people still had to go to the front. They still had to risk their lives and intimidation could get them to do it. I wonder, there were a lot of mechanical problems when bomber crews uh, had to fly over Germany and a lot of them died. Yeah. So were those mechanical problems causing people to fly back to England real or was it fear? And turns out a lot of it was fear. 
and General Curtis LeMay, who was nuts, by the way, accurately noticed that. And he was in one of those planes, and he said the first plane to turn back was everybody was getting court-martialed. Very few planes turned back, and the job got done. But understand, that was intimidation. That did not produce a lot of internal initiative. Right. And when you compare American damage control, where people could exercise initiative, versus Japanese damage control, where people couldn't exercise initiative, the American damage control did a heck of a lot better job. Right. But if you've got unskilled people who are under a lot of stress and sleep deprivation, intimidation might be the only way to get stuff done. But it's not going to be a good job. And it's not going to be something that's going to serve you well as a long-term management strategy. Oh, heck no. Oh, heck no. And I think this is actually maybe speaking to, you know, in terms of primary causes, I think you might be hitting on something here as to how it, why it is that this attitude is imbued through all of Scientology's organizations. This, And by this attitude, I'm referring to what you just said about when you're in war. You know, when you're in a high-stress, do-or-die situation, then you can see that while as abusive and horrible and awful as it might be, when it's do-or-die, people step up in some amazing ways and pull off things that they never imagined they'd be able to pull off because they feel their back's against a wall and it is do-or-die. We've got to hit this target. We've got to take this town out. We have to hit this objective. And you give it your all, even your life, for the purpose, for the overall cause of the activity. And Hubbard did live that, even if he didn't live real combat and see real, you know, European or, or Asian theater. But he was around people who did. Yes, he, he was. understood the need. That's right. And I'm wondering if his takeaway from that organizationally, in terms of how he then decided to run his organizations years later, was to you know, create this cultic mindset where we are at war. We are at war with the reactive mind. We're at the we're at war with psychiatry. And eventually, after a few years, Scientology was at war with the entire government of the planet, according to L. Ron Hubbard. Right? I mean, and it was war. It was it was do or die. The unity and sacrifices and achievements produced by that can make war very exciting. Yeah. And that was possibly one reason why war was viewed as very exciting by a lot of historians and the general public. And there was a pacifist in, in World War I who talked about civilian economic programs by the government being the moral equivalent of war, where you get all the benefits of massive amounts of effort, but without the killing. Hmm. It also had the side effect of a lot of problems, but well, see, that's it was the thing—the kind of excitement people craved. Exactly, and again, on a short term, when you first get into it, and you get into this machine, results. you're like, "Oh my God, this is amazing! We're saving the world!" I mean, when I first joined the Sea Org, I thought I had signed on with, you know, the Rebel Alliance. I mean, I thought we were like we were gonna. Changed the world. We were we were fighting we the good you were the fight. The Rebel Alliance in Star Wars: A New Hope, and it turned out it was the 
Rebel Alliance from uh, the sequel trilogy. <laughs> the Force Awakens. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, Last Jedi. That's right. I thought I was getting Empire Strikes Back. I was getting the Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's that. You're exactly right. Because, but 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 to a young person, I mean, I was 25 when I joined the Sea Org. I mean, I was I was fully ready to rock, and I was and I had so much energy, and I had so much to give. And I gave it all. I really did. I mean, I, 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 I'm the one who, who stepped up and decided, yeah, the Sea Org, that's what I got to do. So, uh, so I went into that thinking that I was entering into this pitched battle against the reactive mind. And everybody around me was on the same terms. We were all there like, yeah, we're going to rock this thing. And, and it's really easy in a group like that to lose sight of or lose perspective. You lose all perspective. And and then you enter into this battle sort of footing, this war footing, where everything, every task, every project, every every work, you know piece of work that you're given to do is super important. It's do or die. It's it's everything hinges on this. And this is that kind of constant emergency thing that I that I was talking about when I first got out. Now you know I've been mentioning for years is this kind of frantic emergency ah, is it's a war footing and that's a that's another way of describing it and that creates its own problems yeah huge Not just problems. because of individual burnout which is a huge problem yep especially when you can't get new people yep but there is also the issue of you still have to prioritize because if you just go into emergency mode for the first thing that comes along and then the next thing that comes along and so forth, you aren't responding to the larger strategic issues. You're responding to randomness. That's right. And and, it be, and, and after a while, everything takes on a monotone of importance because everything is super, super, super important. There's never any order that comes down that is sort of you know, this one can wait till next Tuesday. You got other things you're doing right now. Put this one on the back burner. Get it done, but get it done after this and this and this. That's never how orders were communicated in Scientology, right? And and I think that and let me let me let me take a second to point this out cuz I think we've stumbled on a on an on an analogy or a a model here that um that is very, very intensely uh, useful for describing Scientology and the Sea Org uh, attitude. And that is that, you know, the only way that that kind of short-term emergency war kind of thing works over any length of time, months, years, is if the generals and the people lower on the command chain have some concept of what they're involved in and what what the strategic, the long-term strategic targets are, right? And if they're allocating people based on actual emergency situations yes. rather than throwing them at every situation. Exactly. Because if people are going to kill themselves on trivial objectives, that's going to be a waste of effort. My point, exactly, because the people at each level are not actually being briefed or conversely, and this is where the deceptive part of Scientology comes in, they get briefed, 
But then two days later, the priorities change. And then the priorities change again, and then they change again. And then after about the fourth time they change, they circle back around to the first one and they go, how come this isn't done? What the hell? And you're like, dude, you gave me task number one, which is going to take me a month to get done. And then you give me task number two, which pulls me off of task number one. Then you give me number three. Then you give me number four. Then you tell me all of them have to get done now. And then you give me a comment because I didn't get the first one done. And that's a classic case of of working at cross purposes, destroying the effectiveness of all those efforts. Exactly. And that's a management problem. That's a leadership yes. problem. It is a lack of leadership problem. It's a, it's a fake pseudo leadership problem. You have somebody who looks like they're a leader, but they are not. And I am not and just referring to the top with David Miscavige, but all the middle management people who are trying so desperately to be good leaders and provide good management to their people. They get fucked on this. They get sandwiched on it every time. And that's one of the things I noticed in hearing a lot of accounts from Scientology, that a lot of the leadership techniques seem to just amount to yelling at people and telling them to get it done. And because you're so desperate. And there's a place for that. Well, but that's, but you don't know what else to do. I mean, it, you know, you can't, you, you don't know why this is a priority. You don't know when the next priority is going to come down or where it's going to come from. And people below you are like, dude, I don't get it. And you, after a while, you know, you're the leader. You don't get it. So you're like, shut up and do it. <laughs> and uh, didn't you mention one of the people when you were a staff member just shouting at people uh, in our office, which is right next to where the public uh, yep. was studying? My first experience with the Sea Org was that. It was me as a 15-year-old studying in the classroom in Santa Barbara while the Sea Org member who ran the organization ripped into every single staff member about how they weren't getting enough work done. And it, I mean, and she was yelling at full voice. I mean, you could hear her on the other side of the building. We're right on the other side of the wall, you know, where I'm having to tell the supervisor, dude, could we please tell her to i mean this is distracting and the supervisor would have to go over and go uh, sir um you know if you could got students studying you know and she's like oh 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 yeah okay sorry you know and then 10 minutes later she's yelling at somebody else again i mean this was how i was introduced to scientology i don't know why it is i didn't just walk out the first day except i was just an idiot 15 year old and i and i'd been primed to believe that this was the really good stuff so i had to deal with that and just hearing that from a distance, you don't know if maybe there's a legit issue that sometimes an organization is dysfunctional, so some intimidation is needed for a short-term corrective. Yep. Or it could be the person is just kind of sadistic and they love the interpersonal domination aspect of yelling and That's making fine. everything a priority becomes an excuse to harass people and assert interpersonal dominance exactly and that becomes the sort of how do i i think i'm gonna have, i'm gonna say it this way i'll describe it this way is that sort of the artificial personality of a scientology executive that is sort of put on 
Scientologists like a suit of clothes. You know, when, when you get in, you get indoctrinated into this mindset that this is how you have to be in order to get compliance to get people to follow your orders, you have to yell and scream at them because as L. Ron Hubbard wrote in his own goddamn policies, you have to, your executive presence and demand has to be more powerful than this person's reactive mind that is telling him not to comply with your orders. So you, that's where all the yelling and screaming comes in, right? Is so they're using reactive mind as the explanation for why people wouldn't do something instead of the typical, you've told me to do 20 things already. Yes. Yes. It's just your reactive mind. My demands are not the unreasonable part of this equation. Your failure to get them done is what is unreasonable. And that's a recipe for... A lot of stress on the part of the junior, a lot of stress on the part of the senior, and guess what happens when people are stressed? The brain, the brain changes. Yeah. Um, I believe uh, a Marine colonel by the name of Cooper. Uh, he's famous. It's famously called Cooper's Colors. Developed a kind of category system for how the brain responds to stress. Mm. You've got condition white, yada, yada, every day uh, is normal, nice, there's no stress. Condition yellow, uh, elevated heart rate, uh, some more mental focus, blood shifts from some of the uh, less immediately used parts of the body. Uh, you might have more adrenaline running, uh, slightly uh, narrowed vision. Uh, so people in certain more uh, technical roles in combat might have it, like helicopter pilots. Condition red. Uh, you start to get tunnel vision because uh, the body is in fight or flight mode. And part of it is that the eyes change shape. Mm -hmm. So it's designed to focus very accurate vision on a very narrow circle. Right. Yeah, you become very focused on the threat. And a lot of the blood goes away from your brain uh, to your muscles, your heart, and other things needed for physical fighting. Mm -hmm. So when people are in an environment that requires intellectual thinking, going into the wrong stress reaction can be devastating. Good point. Very good point. And exactly what the Sea Org is designed is 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 pretty much at least it's what it appears to be to me. What it's designed to do, and I think that this is a reflection of Miscavige as much as it is Hubbard at this point. I mean, Miscavige is certainly the guy running Scientology now. L. Ron Hubbard wrote a lot of shit down, but Miscavige is the one who implements it. And the way Hubbard he used flattery it, at times, he did. I have not heard of Miscavige using personalized flattery very often. No, he uses it with people like Tom Cruise. Yeah. Right? Best buddy, Tom Cruise, right? Best buddy who he reads the confidential secrets of to his other Sea Org members over scotch or whiskey and uh, while he's uh, 
you know, uh, when Tom's not around. And, uh, I mean, frankly, I think that Miscavige probably likes Tom Cruise more than the people who are more. Oh, I think he him. does, too. And yet look at look at how he acts. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think Tom Cruise is one of the few people David Miscavige actually trusts. But, you know, it's only because Tom Cruise is a goddamn fanatic, you know, and he's totally bought into I mean, Miscavige's uh, BS. So, uh, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's going down on a rabbit hole. It's uh, it, it, it's an interesting one. But yeah, but it's but it speaks a little bit to, um, you know, to Miscavige's attitude about people. I think he hates people. You know, I don't know that Mesca- I don't know that Hubbard hated people, but I do. I am absolutely positive that he didn't trust people, and that he and that he wasn't into people except for how they would be tools to advance his agenda. I think Miscavige is exactly the same way, but I think that his hatred is expressed much more easily. You know, uh, even to to his inner circle, I'm talking about. You know, to the people who he who he actually. Uh, I, relies on. I haven't seen any sign that Hubbard hated people, but he certainly loved adulation. And he oh, yeah. feared rejection, I think. Yeah, very much. I, I think but, that's true. But I think when Hub- Hubbard was trying to get stuff done, the impression I get is that he would sometimes reduce the stress level. Yes. So that people would have more ability to focus on the task. Sometimes he would do that. Often he would do that after he scapegoated somebody. You know, something would get done or something wouldn't get done, and Hubbard would find somebody else besides himself to take the blame for it, even though it all originated with Hubbard. And Snow White was the perfect and biggest example of this, where he threw his own wife under the bus rather than take responsibility. I'm thinking in terms of a very short-term task, like how do you paint... Uh, this part of the show. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm speaking to that too. It's just, it's, it's just a pattern. It's how he acts, right? And, and so we can see it most obviously in something very public, like the Snow White bust when the FBI raided the church in the '70s. But absolutely, you see this come down into the short term as well. And, but here's the thing that Hubbard would do. I'm going to share a story with you about Hubbard that somebody told me that that. I believe is true because the person would have literally had to have either made it up and they had no reason to do that when they told me this story or they were delusional. And I have no reason to believe the person was delusional when they told me this story. This was a Sea Org member while I was in the Sea Org telling me an L. Ron Hubbard story about his personal experience with Hubbard on the ship. Um, And he was there and Hubbard was um, he he got called to Hubbard's office. And um, and he was there with another guy, and so and he was the kind of person who was actually terrified of Hubbard, because he was new on the ship. He was he was relatively new to the Sea Org, and he was very nervous and very freaked out. And he goes up to Hubbard's office, and Hubbard is standing there. Oh, and he said he was always at deep attention, and yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, and it was very serious. And this is how he was telling me, you know, how Hubbard broke him of this attitude. Is he was standing there at attention, and this other guy was giving some briefing to Hubbard, reading from a report, and Hubbard's sitting at his desk. And every time this guy who's reading from the report looks down at his paper and he's not looking at Hubbard, Hubbard's sticking his tongue out at this guy. 
making faces at him, trying to bust him up. He's standing at full attention, thinking he needs to be, you know, this very serious, you know, oh, I'm, I'm standing before the Commodore, right? And Hubbard wasn't having any of it. He was like, and he was, he was purposefully trying to get him to bust up. And he finally did. The guy just lost his shit. Totally fucking started laughing. Um, Hubbard's laughing. The other guy's standing there going, what's going on? He didn't get it at all. And he said after that, he was actually really at ease around Hubbard. Now, I don't know that that's true because Hubbard was was bipolar as hell. But I can believe it. I would I never imagine David Miscavige doing that. And I did. Yeah. Same. Right. And I think that's the difference between L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige is that uh, is that Hubbard would allow for moments of levity. Hubbard would allow for joking and for and for let's not all be so serious all the time. And Miscavige joking never... Joking and degrading aside. Well, exactly. But... I mean, I, yeah, exactly. Again, let's not... Let's not say, let's not take more into what I'm saying than what I'm saying, right? Hubbard had some moments. Yes, exactly. Uh, he was a hypocrite, definitely, but he had some moments of levity. That's right. That's right. The only, the only time I ever heard of any levity around Miscavige, I mean, I heard about Miscavige going out to see movies with the people before he was the big hot head honcho. He would, he would be in there partying with them and stuff too. But I, but after he assumed command, after he took over, um, I never heard anything like that. The only story I ever heard about David Miscavige messing around or joking around was one time he was apparently going around the gold base with some pop rockets or or fireworks of some kind and throwing them into people's offices to startle them. Oh dear God! And so they were, and she and this girl was telling me this story because she used to work at CMO and. Um, before she got busted and she was working where I was, uh, she was was telling this story about how they were holding the door and jokingly trying to keep him out. And he was kind of playing along while he was trying to throw these firecrackers in there. So that was the only example I have to give you of somebody having told me a story, an anecdote about Miscavige in a moment of levity. I heard oh, many stories about that would Hubbard be perceived like as levity by other people. Exactly, and even then, what was he doing? He was running around the base throwing fireworks in the people's offices to scare the shit out of them. So you know, yeah, Miscavige. I mean, the prankster. I think I think Miscavige was getting a, a kick out of uh, the musical Chairs incident. Oh yeah, that exactly. was his version of levity. That's right. Uh, but uh, in terms of stress. Uh, one of the things that people do when they're under a lot of pressure is that they stop coordinating with other people beyond what's needed for their immediate job. Yep. That's so right. you've, with all the pressure uh, on stats around Thursday at what, two? Yep. Uh, you think people are more cooperative on Monday or are they more cooperative on Thursday around two? Oh yeah. Uh, well, it depends on how uh, cooperative is all is is relative to uh, which task or product are you trying to produce. If I'm trying to produce product A and you're trying to produce product B, and I need something from what you're producing in order to produce my thing, uh, we're not going to cooperate at all. I, I'm going to completely elbow you out of the way and get my thing done, right? Because I'm going to be for it if I don't, and so are you. 
and some people think that's healthy competition, but believe me, what I just described was it was not implemented in a healthy way. And that's been noticed with other organizations. That's one reason why the fire the bottom 10% uh, policy tends to stop working after a few years because you run out of uh, easy people to fire. Mm. And then you run into a lot of people desperate to save their jobs. And that means they stop focusing on anything other than what they're being rated on. Exactly. And that self-preservation instinct is completely organic, completely understandable, but it destroys cooperation, esprit de corps, and any real forward motion of the organization. Because let me share another little tidbit out of this, out of Sea Org management and staff to a lesser degree, but definitely experienced it there too, is you have every single day the, the head executives of whatever organization, whether it's a management or a service organization, Every day, the department heads or division heads meet to do what's called a product conference. At the management level, this is a network coordination committee. And the head of the conference is either the executive director or, in the case of the management, it's the, it could be the RTC person. It could be a CMO person. It's a high-powered person. And... Um, the usual way that these meetings were run was not see ostensibly it's for coordination it's okay you're going to work with this but you know this is going to get this what are you going to get done today what do you need from the other people in the room to get your products and if everybody's under stress well, it's going to stop being not only about- stress not only stress but the meeting itself becomes a stress point because if you man it if you are stupid enough to, to speak up, you're probably going to get ripped into. Oh, I need, you know, I need something from X, right? I need, I need the LRH communicator to get ABC done. You have this program. It tells you to do this. I need your help with that. And if the person who's running the meeting has a problem or a beef with you, let's say, on that particular day, or they're irked at you or pissed at you for some reason... Then you say, hey, I could use this cooperation. And they go, oh, you could, huh? Why don't you shut the fuck up and get your job done instead of asking wow. for everybody else People to do, actually do your that? job? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Straight up. I'm used to that. The, the main risk being uh, blame shifting. Oh, no. This is straight up. How dare you tell this person to get your job done? Your job is to get that done. You figure it out. Wow. That's even uh, more dysfunctional than the other examples I know of. Yeah, that's par for the course. And that only has to happen to you about two or three times before you will never, ever, ever ask for any coordination or cooperation in that meeting. You learn very quickly that if you want to work with somebody else, you do it outside the meeting. And then the meeting itself, which, by the way, dominates one to two hours of your day Every single day. Then the meeting becomes a wasted block exactly. of time. It's not a coordination meeting. It's not a cooperation meeting. It's a face ripping meeting. Your face is getting ripped off. And you don't know every single day that you walk into that room whether you're going to be the target or whether somebody else is going to be the target or whether all of you are going to be the target because that would happen sometimes too. Okay, everybody stand up. All of you to pots right now. You guys are all just a bunch of inefficient Incompetent boobs. 
right? And, and, and we all find ourselves scrubbing pots for an hour, right? Because, you know, the person who's running the meeting is on a tear that day. They're in a bad mood. They're getting their face ripped. I mean, it, again, this is all shit rolling downhill. It's not just going downhill. It's it's being accelerated by the people at the bottom. Well, that when they're getting their face ripped, you know, they want to pass along the love to everybody else. I mean, that's how it rolls in the Sea Org. So I... I wanted to bring up the organizational re- revisions that are happening right now. This whole training, this OEC FEBC training, whatever they're whatever they're calling it, they they have an, you know any number of alphabet you know uh, abbreviations they can throw at things in Scientology, just like the military. But however, they reorganize Hubbard's policies or edit his lectures, or talk about how everybody was getting it wrong and now we've got it right, no matter how much of that nonsense Miscavige layers over to the Scientologists, and believe me, they're going to suck it up when he does. It's still being applied within the same dysfunctional culture. Exactly. Miscavige is what needs to change. The whole structure needs to change. Everything about this situation is the problem. It's not we didn't have some policies understood, and if we could just get people to understand these policies, everything would work beautifully. That's not the picture in Scientology. And, uh, you know, I dare say other organizations as well. I can believe that. Um, another thing that causes stress is uncertainty. And when you can see that a senior is nervous, it becomes a point of concern from your standpoint about, okay, if I start to do what the senior is telling me to do, will it change in the next day? Right. So that happens. a stressed out senior may not do a good job of prioritizing what has to happen below them, which is going to compound the stress of the person trying to do the job. That's right. That's right. And I ran into this so many times. I had a position where I had juniors. I had people in a division under me when I was a Sea Org member, not in management. After I went over to AOLA, I was running the, the Division 4, the technical division there, to get people onto the OT levels. And, and I drove the stats up real fast. I mean, it wasn't it, – it was it – was, it was, uh, the, the person who had been doing the job before me didn't know what they were doing, and the people who, who were working there were apathetic, you know, never got time off, never felt like anybody cared about the work they were doing. They just they had just become, you know, kind of Burned automatons, down. you know? So I went in there, and I was like, hey, everybody, let's let's do some work, right? Let's actually have some fun with this. And I started working with them individually and giving them things to do and and things they could do, and and I would be the buffer, manage, you know, the, the, my senior was one of these, you know, ruthless, nobody deserves time off, nobody deserves a bonus, nobody deserves validation when they do a good job, fuck them all, they're all just a bunch of, you know, scumbags. This was her attitude about my, the people who worked for me, my juniors. So I was like, okay, well, I can't listen to her because she's useless. So I just started directing them on what to do. And I knew the policies and I knew how to get the work done. So I was directing them on what to do. And we rocketed the statistics and everything was taking off. So she couldn't touch me. And I started giving rewards to my people and bonuses and time off. And we did a movie night a couple nights and stuff like that. She hated all of that. She was like, you shouldn't have to. She literally told me, 
I said, I'm buying production. You are giving me 30 bucks to go, you know, rent a movie and, and, and some popcorn for these people. And I'm producing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in return for this organization. You are helping me buy production from these people. That's what we're doing here, right? I was trying to, I was trying to put it in terms she would understand. And she still was like, I just don't think you should have to buy production from people. They should just do the work because they're here to do it. And I was like, do you not understand how people work? You know, like people want I some validation. I think that's a big issue with how a lot of dysfunctional leaders become dysfunctional because I don't think they understand the importance of stress relief. No, they and the don't. Effect of stress on productivity. That's right. And and this was a case where she wasn't even one of these people who was getting shit on all the time. She this is just how she was. It wasn't rolling downhill. She was the one who started it. I mean, I was just like, I can't believe this. After about a after about what was it? I think it was about six months of working for her before I finally started losing my my you know my head started blowing up around her and I just finally started telling her I you just don't know what you're talking about I I can't listen to you you have no idea how to run people the way you run me if I tried to run these people the way you talk to me I wouldn't get anything done you 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 don't give me anything I finally just was blowing up in that I direction mean, I mean positive know. rewards can have their own risks but there's a whole value of stress relief. Exactly. And even in war, even in exactly. infantry operations in World War II and Korea, there were things to help people relieve stress. Right. They brought cigarettes in rations. Uh, there were little, very small books that were given to people so they could read. Uh, to take their mind off of the constant stress. Right. I mean, in, in addition Operation to the killer it, in Korea, they had a coffee shop at the front, so people could have some sense of normality. Exactly. Because if you're going to put people into a long-term high-stress situation, you absolutely it is absolutely incumbent on you, uh, if you care at all about those people that you allow them to blow off the steam that is built up in them, that you allow them outlets, healthy outlets for their energy and for their angst and their frustrations because they're going to have them. It's not normal for people to be in high stress, long-term situations. That's not good for us, you know, and people will do it and they'll do it for all kinds of reasons that they think are good reasons and sometimes they are really good reasons. I mean, World War II was a really good reason. I mean, it wasn't like there were bad reasons for being there. That needed to happen. But if you're going to take care of these people, if you care about them over, you know, at all, then you're going to give them these opportunities for, for stress outlet. And, and the Sea Org doesn't provide that. And when I literally tried to provide it, I was given, I was shown very clearly how I was the one off the rails. I was the one who didn't know what I was talking about. And even with my stats out the roof, my senior still hated me for what I was doing. So, I, you know. 
And the effect of stress on productivity tends to be exponential, not additive. So if you have 10, 10 units of stress, it might be closer to a uh, 50 loss of production. Yeah. Not 10 loss of production. That's right. That's right. I, I, I would say that that's absolutely true because having produced <laughs> in a stressful environment and in a non-stressful environment, I can compare my productive output, you know, and it's, and it's definitely uh, different, you know, definitely in terms of quality. And I'd like to point out that the whole assumption that you, sh you should just be, you should just tell people to do something and they'll do it without any need for stress relief that I think comes from the assumption that any resources not applied to production are wasted. Yeah. And they don't see stress relief as one of those things applied to production. That's right. That's right. It was a, it was a, it was a basic philosophical difference that she and I were experiencing because she thought people were automatons and they should just do what they're told and do their job and shut up. And she was there, and that those were the reasons why she was an awful senior. She was awful. She was one of the worst I ever had. Um, you know, some other people in my Sea Org experience did get it or did understand it more or better. Sometimes they felt between a rock and a hard place because they wanted to give some positive reinforcement or give some rewards or give some bonuses, but, but the money wasn't there or the time wasn't there or, you know, they had a senior who, who wasn't into it. So, um, so it's not that everybody in the Sea Org doesn't get it. I was in the Sea Org and I got and it. I, I think Hubbard yeah. got it. He did have kind words for people. He From time did to time. flatter people. He understood that. Um, that stress relief was a thing. I mean, he had parties on the boat. He had, you know, beer and cheese at Christmas. He had things that he would do that even if he wasn't the one who originated it, at least he didn't stop it from happening. And Miscavige just straight up stops that stuff from happening and doesn't care. And, um, and it's all about, you know, it's everything for him and nothing for everybody else. Hubbard was everything for me and very little for everybody else. So if you know if you're looking for a but difference, he understood there. that he was kind of seeding it. Yeah, that letting that's right. people relieve some of their stress made them more productive for him. Yeah. Yes, but I think still, that's true. He understood stress relief was part of having a functional crew. I mean, to a degree, like I said, to a degree. Yeah, you know, he, he still bullied people. He oh. still threatened people. He still shouted at people. The CMO, sorry, the, the messengers yeah. shouting at people was pretty basic. Uh, I'll play the nice guy and you play the bad guy. Well, except for the fact that he never let on that he was the nice guy and they were the bad guys. <laughs> well, sometimes he did. Sometimes he did. Yeah, sometimes. But like I said, he scapegoated people more often than not for his own bullshit. And that was where he was really pretty tyrannical himself. Um. Because you could think you were on in his good graces. And you and see, here's how Hubbard would screw you is you think you're doing good. You think everything's fine. And then he cuts you off at the knees. So so he had his own his own bullshit with this, too. Um, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to I don't you know, I don't I don't have to hate on Hubbard on everything. I just I don't want to also paint too positive of a picture of the yeah. guy either. I mean, relative to Miscavige. That's really where I. Uh, yeah. I mean, Hubbard was not somebody I want to work for. 
Never. But yeah. he's still better than Miscavige. Exactly. I, it's I, the difference I agree between it's the difference between uh, Lenin and Stalin. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Did you want Hitler or do you want Mussolini? Which which one were you looking for here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, both of them are bad choices. Exactly. Exactly. But different uh, flavors. Different flavors of it. So okay. So that was. Um, yeah, so stress in the Sea Org, stress in Scientology. This is, and this bleeds over to the public in that they're the ones who have to be the receiving at the receiving end of, of all of this, of you know. some of the stress. Because I get the impression that the public still get kind of treated with kid gloves relative to the Sea Org to the degree that they can be. But it's, um, but it, but it explains an awful lot of the, you know, two a.m. knock on the door. We need your money now. Like, why? Why would they do that? You know? Well, this is why. Because, because, they're, because they're not thinking straight. They're really not. When somebody's knocking on your door to try to get $5,000 from you at 2 in the morning, this is somebody who is not thinking straight. That, yeah. You know? That's, bur- that's burning a long-term contact for a short-term goal. Correct. And that's the tunnel vision. That's right. And even when you try to resist that, you try to push back on it. You try to say, no, I'm not going to do this. This isn't right. I'm going to burn this contact, like you say. Um, that happens so many times. And the guy above you, he doesn't care. He's not invested. He doesn't know this person. All he sees is a number, a quota that has to be met, and you better get it done. And if that's the only way you can do it, then get to it. That's that's freaking terrible. But yep. I think there's another aspect People respond to different situations with stress or not stress. So some people get really stressed out when they're shouted at. Some people aren't as stressed out by that. Yep. Some people get really stressed in social situations. Some people don't get as stressed out. Yep. Some people uh, are a lot more comfortable reading dense, uh, dense administrative material other people are not. Mm-hmm. And normally people self-sort into that. The people who are A-OK with math and numbers are probably more likely to go into accounting than uh, being a bus driver. Sure. The people who are more OK with uh, uh, interacting with strangers might be more likely to go into sales uh, than uh, working in a lighthouse for the next 20 years. Sure. In the Sea Org, I get the impression that it is not quite as uh, self-selected. It's so more difficult. Into- yeah, it's difficult. Um, I thought when I was in the Sea Org that I was particularly good at getting myself into and out of situations that other people seem to get stuck in. Um, in terms of jobs we were that were foisted off on us or things we had to do, you know, um, every Saturday we had to do cleaning stations, and you know you'd have to white glove the office. You know, you know everybody spent the morning vacuuming, dusting, cleaning, getting into the air ducts. I mean, real cleaning. I mean, we were cleaning fanatics. We had very clean spaces. I hated that. I hated doing that crap. Right. 
but what because I, I didn't like being ordered around i didn't like security guards coming around and checking on me i didn't like this like feeling like i was a four-year-old right so i arranged to go do the shredding so i would i would take all the shredding put it on a cart and off i would go and i was away from all of that and that was actually kind of representative of my later years in the Sea Org where I got myself the hell off the base to go do recoveries and stuff and go work on these ideal org missions because I just got sick and tired of being on the base and all the pressure and craziness of the base. And so you could kind of, because I did it, I saw that you could finagle your way around in different ways, but... It was a, but it was never a skill that I could ever uh, describe to other people. I don't know how I did it. I just did. I, 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 even right now, as I sit here, I can't tell you. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and that's how I made that happen. Somehow, I just advantaged myself in certain ways that I could you know, sort of wind through this labyrinth of crazy and get myself into these positions that were not as stressful as the other positions I saw people in. And I guess I got really good at that after having been shoved into so many stressful situations that I just got sick and tired of it. And I think part of that has to do with a certain ability to withstand stress and uh, pressure. Yeah. Because there's a lot of situations where a person is, I know this is what needs to be done, but the moment they encounter a bunch of angry people, they just fold. Yeah. And that might, I don't know if that's more common in cults, but that certainly seems to be one of the things keeping people in. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you'll find a proclivity toward that way more in cults than you will in other situations. Because I will certainly connect the dots here that an extremist mindset, by definition, is a mindset of stress. It's a, you know, the extremism is a, is kind of concentrated stress that way because you are angst up about some problem that could be a legitimate problem in the world or could be a legitimate problem in your life, but you are exaggerating its importance or exaggerating its urgency way beyond where it should be for you as an individual. You know, the saving the world thing is an example of this. I can never rest. My head can never hit the pillow and actually have a good night's sleep because somewhere somebody is being suppressed. Somewhere somebody has a reactive mind. Somebody somewhere there's some problem that I'm responsible for and I have to solve because I am that big of a being. <laughs> and know? if your head isn't hitting the pillow, are you actually able to save the world? Well, see, you don't think that far because you have to save the world and that's all that matters. And so my and head hitting the pillow is the option in that picture. You're under so much stress that your vision narrows to the point that you stop being productive towards your core goal. That's right, but you don't let yourself know that. And nobody else around you in a cult environment is gonna stop and, and smell the roses. That's not, the, 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 the environment creates that mindset. And that's as good a description of a cult as anything else, is it's a group of people who are riling themselves up 
to this incredibly hyperbolic, exaggerated idea of their own importance. You know, and this speaks a little bit to uh, what we were talking about before the show with uh, righteousness and self-righteousness. Everybody's in this headspace of utter self-righteousness, and they've riled themselves up, each other, to get into that headspace where it's just this, this righteous view that we're right, everybody else is wrong, everything I do is perfect, everything else everybody else does is totally stupid, and... You don't have the luxury of self-criticism or reflection in that picture, and so you don't even think for a moment that anything you're doing could be wrong. And in that period of extreme stress and confidence and sense of emergency, all sorts of bad things happen. Big time. Empirically so. under a period of stress, people are also less likely to acknowledge a mistake on their part and they're less likely to correct it, and they're more likely to push back against people who pointed it out. Correct. And that's that's a, that's a great observation. That's exactly what's going on there. And uh, and I think, uh, I think we've talked about this enough that I think we should start wrapping up this show because I think we've covered some really good territory here. And certainly, uh, you, you're always so good at this because you, you know what you do for me in these shows is you bring up memories that I have forgotten all about. I mean, I, it's stuff I just have forgotten completely about because i i'm for for i think after if you guys have watched this show for the last hour and a half i think you guys can understand why i would want to forget about all of this i mean i don't forget about it but you know what i mean why i'd want to put all this behind me and maybe not think about it so much it's because i have so many memories of so much stress of so, that it becomes traumatizing i mean it's it's not just short-term stressful situations that all of us experience it's 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 an enforced stress that goes on for not just days not just weeks not just months it went on for years at this high 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 level it's exhausting it's grueling. It's stupefying. It makes you stupid. It made me incredibly stupid. And it, and it really disadvantaged me in so many ways. And if you want to know, I guess really this does such a great job of answering why do Scientologists act like such idiots? Why do they, why do they relate to other people in such a stupid way? I, you really don't have to look a whole lot farther than what we talked about in this episode. Even if you you can dig into Hubbard's bullshit and his references and his and his nonsense, but we also should look at the the environment in which these beliefs are propagated and talked about. And that's that's what we're doing with these shows. And I think that it it, it explains a lot about the behavior. I mean, one of the not notable things in a lot of totalitarian movements is the paranoia. Yeah. And the paranoia becomes a huge reason why internal critics are suppressed, why a lot of nasty things are done to people, and why a lot of organizational catastrophes happen. Yeah. Because it becomes hard to tell the difference between someone who's making a genuine observation and someone who is a presumed enemy. That's right. Exactly right. And this is why this entire effort that Miscavige is on right now to revise all this crap and, and, and re-put it out and repackage it and all that, you know, if he's got a sincere bone in his body, and I really don't believe that he does, 
But if this were a sincere effort to reform Scientology's organizations and get them on the straight and narrow and get them producing again, like they were in the 70s, let's say, when Scientology was having a, an actual boom period, if that is this effort, it's going to fail. It's going to fail miserably. And Miscavige is going to be 100% responsible for it because he's the guy who runs Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard's policies are secondary to David Miscavige's commands. And so the flavor of Scientology, the look and feel of Scientology, and the organizational attitude and culture of Scientology all come from him at this point. You know, we really, there's, there's very few things to realistically point the finger at Hubbard about still. The, the, the base beliefs and all the craziness, yeah, sure. But in terms of the culture and how the thing runs, it's Miscavige. And, and therefore, we can say, why is Scientology tanking? Why is Scientology one of the like, most failed cults of the last you know, two decades? It's 100% because of David Miscavige, his incompetence and his sadism. And then it's really that simple. You know. Well, I'll say uh, the observation that Scientology survives despite itself. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Scientology is interesting as a very repressive middle class cult. Mm -hmm. So you get you've got a lot of rather repressive lower class cults, but not so many repressive middle class cults. Those tend to burn out pretty quickly. But Scientology recruited a lot of relatively educated or at least smart middle-class people decades ago mm -hmm. and they created an organization that was very bureaucratic uh had a lot of gloss and uh appeal but lasted a lot longer than a lot of others so it's kind of one of those weird cases one of the first major ufo cults one of the first major middle-class cults uh that didn't implode so it's kind of unusual. I mean, you certainly had other groups like the Communist Party of the United States, which was pretty culty, but it also uh, kind of imploded uh, later on. Mm. Scientology is still stuck around, which is pretty, I think, more of a testimony to the faith people have in each other, if not in the actual results. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I think I see where you're coming with that. That works. It's uh, it's dying off now, though. Yes. I really believe that. I really do. I mean, people ask in me about this. In the United States, it's probably pretty much dead. Pro pretty much. In other countries, well, there is probably a lot more vulnerable people out there. Well, basically, I think I'm still going to stick with my older saying, though, that it's dead and it just hasn't realized it yet. I really think it's just running on inertia. And I and I I've got a, I've got deeper thoughts on that in terms of maybe it's being used as a bit of a front group for miscavige for other things. But that's just conjecture. The bottom line is that as a as a public religious movement, Scientology is a joke and it's on its way out. And that's that's the truth. In the United States. Yes. Yeah. Uh one of the observations about the fall of communism was that the, the concept of science was so badly damaged by communism. 
that a lot of people fled to a whole bunch of pseudoscience. Mm. And that meant that a lot of cults, a lot of uh, pseudoscientific remedies became very, very popular in the post-communist world. Okay. And I think that contributes to some of the initial plausibility for Scientology a decade ago. I get, I get that. And I see your point there. And I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. There's there's always going to be a group of people who are either uninformed, right, or um, desperate. These two things go together. Um, who are going to fall for the pseudoscientific promotional materials, right, the propaganda of it. Um, and unfortunately, have to have a negative experience with it, you know, sometimes tragically so before they wake up or before others around them wake up to what is actually being peddled and realize it's just a bunch of nonsense. And that's kind of the cycle of, of con men and how they work, you know? And so we're always going to have to deal with that. There's always going to be a fight. Um, and I just think that at this point, that fight with Scientology is on its, is on the backside. In the United States. Yes. And, and, and probably I think, I, in I Eastern think, Europe too. I think uh, so. I, 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 you, you say the United States, and I, and I get that, but I do want to stress that the United States is the origination point of all of Scientology. Yes. It can't survive in Taiwan if it, if it, if it implodes in the United States. It's not going to – I don't, I don't mm -hmm. see it lasting long there or them moving their, their base of operations to another country or I something. Mean, they don't need to have a huge operation in the U.S. Uh, if – uh, they've got a large number of followers elsewhere. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I, I think there's certain things going on behind the scenes that 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 indicate that that might not necessarily be the case. I think if it implodes in the U.S., it implodes everywhere. But that's but I could be wrong. I mean, you know, predictions are a dime a dozen. So what do I know? I, yeah. I you know. We'll have to see how this plays out. What we what I what I think we agree on is the fact that it's. On its way out. Um, uh, kind of one final point. Yeah. One of the things I found interesting was the way a lot of uh, snap decisions get made when a bunch of protesters show up. Ah. So, for example, uh, they started having Sunday services after protest. Uh, so they had to find an explanation. And they couldn't just say, well, we feel threatened by a number of protests here and we're going to make up a reason that doesn't require uh, creating whole new bureaucracy. They created Sunday services. And that's a, probably a lot more expensive and effort consuming than uh, what they needed. When they're under that immediate pressure, I don't think they had the creativity left to think of a good explanation for why they didn't want protests there. Uh, Another instance, when a bunch of people showed up to Golden Era Productions asking for a tour, uh, they were it was initially told that this is a public facility. You can schedule a tour. Okay, when can we schedule a tour? Uh, this is a this is a private facility. No access. Right. Yeah, I mean, those definitely... kind of contradictions would <laughs> yeah. have been spotted when they were thinking about what they were doing, but they weren't. Probably because they were under so much momentary stress of what would Miscavige do to people that they weren't able to think of 
a better explanation. Because they went from, instead of being conditioned white to conditioned yellow, they went from conditioned uh, uh, white to conditioned red or maybe conditioned orange, where they were just, all the blood was going from their brain elsewhere. Right. So it's our brain that comes up with the explanations. And if it's not, if the blood isn't in the brain, they're not going to give a very convincing explanation. Exactly. And, and, and uh, yeah, that's fair enough. That's, that's a good enough explanation for it. That's right. Yeah. Good stuff, huh? Um, <laughs> I would not use the word good in, uh, in conjunction with a lot of the stuff here, but other than to say that these are good examples of high control authoritarian group behavior and manipulation and coercive control and And how self-destructive it is. Exactly. And that's, and this is why these things tend to implode and why we say evil, you know, eats itself and all that is because this is what tends to happen with these things. So always, uh, always interesting but unfortunate that we had to have the lived experience of it in order to talk about it. Um, okay. Well, Cyprian, thank you very much for joining me again for this. And we'll continue on with our, uh, I think we'll have some other things to discuss next time. I think we still have a few more points to hit on this, on this little series of stuff we're talking about, but I think we've covered stress and the Sea Org pretty well here. Um, Short-term stress. I still have a few comments on long-term stress, but (laughs) that's for the future. Fair enough. Longer-term planning there. All right, folks, thanks very much for coming around and listening to us babble on here. I hope that this uh, podcast was interesting, educational, and informative, and hopefully somewhat entertaining in some fashion or another. And, um, of course, you know, join me on Patreon if you want to help me out, help this channel out. I definitely need it. And, um... Let's get let's keep these lights on and let's keep this show going. Help me out with that. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.